We'll remain in the book of Isaiah this morning, so you open your Bibles to Isaiah. We'll be moving through uh, various portions of Scripture in Isaiah, starting with chapter 9, actually. You can follow along in your own Bibles or, or watch the screen. All the Scripture will be up overhead. Last two Sundays we've been in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah, prophet par excellence, nobody writes like Isaiah, the longest of the prophetic books in the Bible. We could spend years in this book, and so even if we move out of the the book of Isaiah, in a couple Sundays from now, keep reading Isaiah. Just a boundless treasure trove of spiritual truth. He certainly was God-centered, Isaiah. He understood the way the Bible all fit together. And we've been presented with this enormous view of God's sovereignty. So sovereign that he isn't merely predicting that things will happen, he makes them happen. Prophecy is not just a really good prediction. God isn't just really smart, so he's a great guesser. He knows the beginning from the end because he brings all things to pass. Even sovereign over foreign kings, which he uses to discipline Israel. This is what's been presented to us in the book of Isaiah. That the foreign kings chose to attack Israel, their own desire, their own will, and yet behind the scenes, as Nathan shared with us last week, so to speak, Revelation peels back the curtains of the Holy of Holies, and we could see what God is really doing, that God was using these kings. Not in such a way that it would relieve them of their culpability for their sins and what they did. But make no mistake, God is completely in charge. He is sovereign. And He's even so sovereign that when He's done using those nations to discipline Israel... He will then discipline those nations. And he promised Judah, promised King Hezekiah that the Assyrian army would not breach the walls of Jerusalem. And he said, and it won't be by chariots or horses or shields or swords that I deliver Israel. It will be from my hand. And everyone wakes up the next morning to 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. God sent one angel. Not the whole heavenly host, one angel. That's how powerful and sovereign our God is. And these things can only be accepted by faith because they're, they're too big for us to wrap our minds completely around. And yet if God is who he says he is, then certainly we should find things in his word that we can't wrap our heads around completely. And yet, God commands us to try, to read, to study. This church needs to be a a reading, studying church. We send everybody to school in this country. My daughter was having kind of one of those moments we all have when you just can't take school anymore. Right, teachers, it's April, you're done. Kids want to be done. Mom was trying to show her, look, you just have another month. But she said, no, it's not just that. Then it's, it's two more years of high school and then four more years of college. And, you know, it was like, whoa, slow down. And we get this idea in our head that when we're done with school, finally I can stop reading and learning. No. 
If we would put that much attention into reading and learning about worldly things, how much more should we be studying and reading and learning? That's why we honored the Citation Award winners this morning for their commitment to read and study and learn. It's not just memorizing Scripture. They've completed a handbook each year, book studies. They read through the Bible completely. And the studying of God and His Word will not stop with the Citation Award, Christy. It's just the beginning. It just whetted your appetite, I hope. This morning's sermon title, Sin Ruins, But the Servant Restores. We're going to focus on this concept of the servant in Isaiah. Sin ruins, but the servant restores. Anyone in this room would disagree that sin ruins. We understand it. But I don't think any of us fully comprehend just how devastating sin really is. And if we need a reminder of just how ignorant we are to how devastating sin is, look at the cross. If sin wasn't so devastating, then God sending His Son to die for us is overkill. If the highest remedy was necessary, then sin must have been the deepest problem we could possibly comprehend or imagine. Let me just show you some of the ways that sin ruins and separates. Sin separated man from God. Our sin separates us from God. This is first and foremost the most important way that sin ruins and separates, tears apart, destroys, corrupts. It separates us from God. Remember Easter Sunday? We looked at death, why Jesus died, the wages of sin is death. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die because we're sinners. Our sin separates us from God. He is holy. He is without sin. He is separate from sin. And if not for Christ, no man, no woman would be able to enter heaven and be in the presence of God. Sin separated man from woman in the garden. God put man and woman together. And He said, what God has put together, let not man separate. But because of their sin, when God called on them to give an account, immediately they began blaming one another. And as part of the curse, there is separation between man and woman. God desires man and woman to live together in peace and harmony as one flesh. And yet, if you've tried being married, it's difficult. And it's not a bad marriage. It's the sin. Sinner A and sinner B. That makes it difficult. Paul said marriage is a good thing, but if you get married, you will have trouble. You will have trouble trying to put two sinners together under one roof. Sin separates man from paradise or heaven. He, he was banished from the garden and we are banished from heaven until we come to Christ and His blood covers our sins and we are given His perfect record credited to our account. Sin separates brother from brother, Cain and Abel. We saw at the end of the Lord's Supper, Judas betraying Jesus and the disciples arguing with one another another over who's the greatest. That sin of pride separates. It separates families. We've seen all through the Old Testament family feuds. The polygamy of Abraham not being patient and waiting on the Lord to give him the child the promise and marrying his wife's servant Hagar and the feud between Hagar and Sarah, and then the feud between Ishmael and Isaac that goes on today. Sin ruins and separates. Sin ruined and separated Jacob's family. Four wives, Leah and Rachel and the 
two bond servants. I was reading this week that the when the nation Israel split into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, they split along those family feud lines in Jacob's family. Talk about holding a grudge. Sin ruins and separates. I also want you, though, to understand this morning that sin attempts to put together what God purposely separated. Not all separation is bad. Some separation is good. A few months ago, Nathan preached on the Trinity. There is separation between the persons of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit, but they're perfectly unified in the Godhead. God created man. We are created in His image. There is separation between us. Yes, there is communion, but there's separation. The created is not the creator. In fact, that's the very thing that got us into trouble, was the created wanting to be the creator and usurp the prerogatives that are only for the creator, defining reality, defining good and evil, defining happiness. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans 1 when he says professing to be... To be wise, they became fools and they exchanged what? The glory of the incorruptible God for corruptible man or animals. God separated man from the other animals. We are not just another animal. We are the pinnacle of his creation and made in his image. We have culpability for our actions. We sin. Animals don't sin. We commune with God. Animals aren't made to do that. I know you love your pet. And we're not going to get into a discussion of whether all dogs go to heaven. (laughs) Let God sort that out. You read parts of Isaiah, it seems there will be animals either in heaven or the millennial kingdom. Sometimes it's hard to tell which is in view. But I would imagine there'd be animals in heaven. Even cats. Yeah. For the record, I'm actually more a cat lover than a dog lover. So I hope that doesn't stop anyone from listening to the rest of the sermon. But I shudder every time I see that billboard on 14. You know. Dogs, dogs are children too, or puppies are children. They're not children. No wonder we take human life in this world uh, not as sacred. God separated man and woman, not in the sense of marriage, but in the sense of we are different. We are different on purpose, by design. God made them male and female. He created them. Sin tries to erase gender boundaries, and we see that going on in our culture even now. God gave man and woman specific roles. Sin tries to erase gender roles. God told the people to scatter and fill the earth with His glory, be fruitful and multiply. In the humanist movement of the Tower of Babel, didn't scatter, and they said, let's combine our human intellect and build a tower to glorify ourselves instead of spreading God's glory around the planet. And the humanist movement does the same today. Supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and humanists aren't being fruitful and multiplying. Whole ancient Western civilizations about to disappear in the next few decades. They refuse to have children. Bless you. And so God separated their languages. He did that on purpose. He separated their languages. But at the end of time, all every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented around the throne of God, singing praises to God, 
professing Jesus is Lord, singing praises to the Lamb. God told Israel to remain separate, set apart from the idolatry of the other nations, but Israel imported pagan worship into the worship of the true God. It's called syncretism. God told them, you are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You are set apart. He's a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. Sin ruined and tore apart Israel. Sin divided the kingdom. Remember when we read through Solomon's time because of his idolatry? God said, because of your father David and my covenant with David, I will wait until after you are gone. But when you are gone, I will divide the kingdom. And he did. Sin separated the captives from the land. So it was God's plan for Israel to be in the promised land. But because of their sin, he separated them from the promised land. Sin tried to separate the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Covenants bring parties together. Israel sinned and broke the covenant, creating separation. But God is faithful to keep his covenant, and he will not abandon Israel. We teach at this church that the church universal does not replace Israel in God's program. God has made covenants with Israel, and again and again and again, he keeps his covenant even though Israel breaks the covenant. And he says it is an everlasting covenant he made with Abraham and with David. And yet, as we took the Lord's Supper, we said that when he lifted the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There is a new covenant he makes with all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. We, we, you and I, are not members of the old covenant. We are members of a new covenant. In Isaiah 59, it reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But even though there's a separation, look, he's saying his hand is not so short that he cannot save. Yes, our sin has created separation, but God's arm of mercy is long enough to bring us back. So the book of Isaiah and and, and the other prophetic books... Talk about a king who will come and restore all things. A king from from Israel. And of course, God talked about this immediately after the fall of man in Genesis 3.15, that a seed of the woman would come. And he put enmity between her seed and Satan. Look, there's that separation. That's a good kind of separation. We want to be separated from Satan and his kingdom, kingdom of darkness. And we've been tracing the seed through Israel's history from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on through to King David. That this king would come from David's line. And we read this portion of scripture every Christmas. Kind of strange reading it in the middle of April, but... Why do we save these things just for Christmas? It's a wonderful passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We love this passage. We know of whom it speaks, our Savior, Jesus. 
But in the time that it was penned, the people who were in the hearing of this prophecy knew this was talking about Messiah. On this side of the cross, they knew Messiah would come, and they had thoughts of him as a geopolitical ruler that would restore Israel to the height of power among the nations. They have, they've got half the picture. They have half the picture. On this side of the cross, we know what the rest of the story is. That Jesus came first to restore sinners back to God, to remove that separation. And he'll return a second time to execute justice and judgment. You know, it's built into the heart of man to want someone to come and fix things. Isn't what this election season's all about? They think somebody will come, the chosen one, and fix things. Yet as Christians, we know there's only one who can truly fix all things, restore all things, undo what sin has ruined. But as Christians, we are called... Think about our call in this way. We are called to put back together that which sin has separated. Paul says we have the ministry of reconciliation. And likewise, we have the ministry of pulling apart the unholy unions that sin has put together. It's a, it's a high calling. And it won't be popular with the world as the world tries to put things together that God had separated while at the same time tearing apart the things that God has put together. We're called to appropriate salvation here and now. To demonstrate to the world that God has the power to bring things back together that sin tore apart, and to keep apart the things that God intended to be apart. And so we live set apart from the world. We live in the world, but not of the world. We witness to the world, but we don't adopt the ways of the world. It's a difficult life, but the Spirit in us guides us and helps us and gives us the power to do this. I said earlier uh, this morning as we were singing about giving God our all, we know we still struggle with residual sin, that Romans 7 is a reality in all of our lives until we're glorified in heaven, that we struggle with the old man, our old ways of thinking. James calls it the double-minded man. Part of the day we're thinking God's thoughts after him and walking in obedience to Christ, and yet with another part of our mind that the Bible calls our flesh or the old man, we still want to do things our way, be our own little gods, interpret the world the way we want to interpret it, have things the way we like it, turn our preferences into laws, and then expect everyone around us to live according to our laws. God is calling us to separate his ways from our ways and kill the old man and live in newness of life. And then to help others around us be reconciled to God and begin that process of not being the double-minded man, but day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, decision by decision, thinking God's thoughts after him. Isaiah gives other names for this king who's going to come and restore all things. One of the names he gives him is the branch. The branch. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's David's father. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. So somebody from the line of Jesse, from the line of David, will come. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Just like when David was anointed king, the Spirit of the Lord fell on David. 
This branch will have the spirit of the Lord resting on him. And he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. This is no human judge, no human king. He is so in communion with God that whatever he judges is righteous because he's decided. Righteousness comes forth from him. He is the source of righteousness. Right? Human judges listen to a case and then look at a law and use the law and the facts of the case to determine guilty or innocent. This branch will not need to do that like earthly kings. He is that source of right and wrong. Whatever he decides is what is right or wrong. He defines right and wrong. This branch has the prerogatives of God. This is no mere human king. I love these descriptions. He'll have this spirit of counsel, wisdom and understanding, strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's who I want to vote for this November. Where's this candidate? And so until the Lord returns, we, uh, we settle for as close as we can get to the standard. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. The same breath that breathed creation into existence and breathed the breath of life into man. And breathed the word of God into existence. That same breath is also the breath of judgment. This uh, branch will restore Israel. Will restore Israel. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard or a banner for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. And will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim, that's another name for the northern kingdom, will depart. And those who harass Judah, the southern kingdom, will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. And Judah will not harass Ephraim. There will be in, internal wholeness to Israel. They will be one nation again. And... God, the branch, Jesus, will reign from David's throne. God still has a literal plan for Israel in the end times. Now we're going to go into the servant song of Isaiah. There's four servant songs. We'll look at three this week and then really focus on the fourth next week. The, the servant is another name for this branch this king, Messiah. The first servant song is in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Do you remember Jesus saying these words in the New Testament? Declaring himself to be the servant from Isaiah. What does that mean? He's saying the first time he comes, those who are just barely hanging on, a bruised reed, a, a, a wick, a dimly wick, uh, a dimly burning wick, those who are hanging on, clinging to God by faith, have mercy on me, a sinner. The, the humble, the gentle, the brokenhearted. He will not bruise a broken reed. Or a bruised reed he will not break. Picture a reed 
that's been bent over and almost to the point of snapping. He, he's, he's not going to break the bruised reed, and he won't put out a dimly burning wick. He, he comes in gentleness and humility, this servant. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Remember that God gave the title servant to Moses again and again, my servant Moses, my servant Moses. And David also, we read from Psalm 19 to start our worship service. And he's talking about the glory of God's word and his commandments and about it keeping his servant pure and keeping his servant from sin. God used the the title servant to those people he is set aside to lead God's people into righteousness. Moses led God's people back into the promised land. David led God's people um, into peace from their enemies. And this servant of God, this servant with a capital S, will lead God's people back to God in righteousness. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nation. So he he is going to restore Israel back to that place they were supposed to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Remember verse 7. It's going to come into play at the end of the sermon. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Remember I told you prophecies are not mere predictions. Before they happen, before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Because God makes them come to pass. Turn to Isaiah 49. We have the second servant song. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He's a special select arrow set aside for a specific purpose. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. I underlined that up on the slide because rabbis today will teach that the servant in Isaiah is the nation Israel. And they would say that Christians wrongly interpret the servant as the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, the servant is the nation Israel. Israel. In verse 3, the servant is obviously the nation Israel. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Why would he follow up verse 3 with verse 4? I've toiled in vain. Because Israel... God toiled to make the nation Israel to be a light to the nations. And at this point in time, they failed in their charge. They were not a light to the nations. They adopted all the same worldly, pagan, idolatrous practices as the rest of the world. But as we continue reading, there's going to be a very important transition. The word servant is going to transition from describing the nation Israel to describing an individual. 
Verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Human being is formed from the womb. To, to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is synonymous for Israel. Jacob is synonymous for Israel. So now God is saying the servant will bring Jacob or Israel back to God. The servant. It would make no sense if the word servant here means Israel. Otherwise we'd be saying God is going to use Israel to bring Israel back to God. That makes absolutely no sense. God is going to use this servant. The first servant Israel failed. The the next servant will bring Israel back to God. It will succeed where Israel failed. So that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is... It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small a thing to just bring Israel back to God. So I will take the servant and I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Where Israel failed, the servant will succeed. Amen. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation. Who's the nation? Who's the nation? Israel. So it wouldn't make any sense for the, for the servant to be Israel when God is saying that the servant will be despised and abhorred by Israel. But we do know that the Israelites despised their own Messiah, rejected him. The servant is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The third servant song is in Isaiah 50. It's the shortest of all of them. Isaiah 50, starting with verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of his servant. Who fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? This is not Israel. That walks in darkness and has no light. Who fears the Lord and wants light and is tired of walking in darkness? Who who obeys the voice of his servant? Who hears the words of Jesus and is tired of walking in darkness and wants to walk in light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will walk in light. They'll have the light of life. It's, it's, it's a question, it's an invitation to be saved, to come to the light, to come to the way, the truth, and the life. And then... The second half of this servant song, a warning. Behold, though, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. In other words, they're trying to create their own light. They're trying to create their own righteousness. They're trying to create their own truth. This you will have from my hand. Here's what you'll get for this. You will lie down in torment. The understanding that the very light, the the fires they lit, thinking would bring them righteousness and truth and glory, would be the same fires that torment them for rejecting the true light. Who is this servant? Who is this Messiah? Who is the branch? Who is this king? Who is the Redeemer? Isaiah 61. Turn there, please. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance 
of our God. We've, we've come full circle. Remember we started with the branch, and the branch, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the servant says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. By the way, the Trinity is in full view in this verse. The Spirit of the Lord God, Yahweh, there's the Spirit, and the Father is upon me, the servant, the Son. Trinity is not a New Testament concept. It's not a concept of all. It's truth. It's reality. Three persons, one God. All in view simultaneously here. And if there's any mistaking who the servant is, or that Jesus even claimed to be the Messiah, the servant, let's end in Luke chapter 4. Please turn to Luke chapter 4. This scene is the second year of the Lord's ministry. The events of the first year of his public ministry are recorded in the book of John. The book of John, we find that he cleanses the temple for the first time. He performs many miracles. Restores sight to the blind. Returns north through Samaria. That's where he has the encounter with the woman at the well. And we pick up the story now. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He's made quite a name for himself. You go into the temple and you turn over all the tables and kick out the money changers and They may not have Facebook, but word still got around. just took a little longer. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Every town had a synagogue. And on the Sabbath, the men would gather to worship. And the highlight of the worship, much in the same way we do here, is to read God's word and then explain it. And everyone would stand up and they would read a passage of Scripture from a scroll. And then the rabbi would sit down and everyone would be eager to hear the rabbi's interpretation of the Scripture. And the way, traditionally, you were supposed to explain the Scripture was to footnote famous rabbis. Well, rabbi so-and-so teaches this. And that led Rabbi so and so to teach this, and that, you know, and then finally, in humility, you would get to yourself and you would add your meaning. And we have these teachings recorded um, in many different places. They help us know a lot about what the Jews thought and believed at the time. And so, this is what Jesus was doing. And he would have been invited by the leader of the synagogue, uh, cleared and vetted, allowed to come and teach, uh, guest rabbi. If there was no guest rabbi, then the various elders in that synagogue would take turns teaching from one Sabbath to the next. And eventually he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Could you imagine returning to your home synagogue? Well, I guess Nathan could. <laughs> of course, Jesus had no fear of man issues. He wasn't worried what people were going to think about his teaching. And he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. We say book, it's a scroll. And Isaiah is so long that it would be broken up into multiple scrolls. So Jesus asked for the portion that had Isaiah 61 in it. As we read what's recorded in Scripture, you will 
if you have a keen eye, hear an extra part that wasn't in Isaiah 61. The part about recovery of sight to the blind, which I said back in the first servant song, the part about giving sight to the blind, remember that? It was normal for the rabbi, because the scrolls only contain uh, this much scripture, if you wanted to quote another scroll, you would just take the liberty of importing it into your message. Don't do this at home. You have a Bible, you can just turn there. Don't, don't insert scripture into other scriptures like that. But Jesus, no doubt, by doing this, was proclaiming to the crowd that he's the servant in Isaiah. And he healed blind people, and word had got out that he could heal blind people, and the servant song said he would restore sight to the blind, and he imported that into Isaiah 61. So he gets up and he reads a very uh, common passage. The crowd would have been very familiar with this passage, especially because they were so eager for Messiah to come and topple the Roman Empire that I'm sure it packed the house when word got out that the visiting rabbi would be preaching any messianic messages. Ear-tickling. Not that it's a bad thing to hear about Messiah, but as Tim Keller writes, when you preach on lust or greed or pride... Don't announce it beforehand. Church will be empty that day. But when you preach on the coming king who's going to restore all things and bring prosperity and, and health, then you could fill an entire stadium in Texas. And so he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stops and doesn't finish the verse. The rest of the verse talking about the day of God's wrath, the day of his vengeance. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them the last thing they expected him to say. He said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the servant. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the branch. It's me the scriptures have been talking about. And they began murmuring, Joseph's son, the carpenter? You can keep reading this week on your own if you want the rest of the story, but I'll pick up next week where I left off and we'll look at the fourth servant song. But for now, I would have you think about what we started with, about how sin separates the things that God meant to be together, but tries to bring together the things that God intended to be separate. Look at your own life, examine your life, and see the sin in your life that is separating you from God and separating you from your loved ones. If you have strife in your house, it's no accident, it's sin. And you need look no farther than your own sin. But I also want you to meditate on the words of Jesus here. Because these are spiritual truths he's talking about. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. Not the financially poor only, but those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Do you feel captive and enslaved by sin, God? offers you release, full pardon. 
You know, at the end of the presidential season here, it's what outgoing presidents do. They begin giving pardons to everyone who don't deserve pardon. We don't deserve pardon. And God grants us pardon, not just by waving His hand and pretending that we didn't sin, but by paying for it Himself on the cross. And He recovers sight to the blind, the spiritually blind, blind to our own sin, blind to our own folly, thinking our way is best and we know everything. And He opens our eyes and gives us spiritual eyes to see things for the way they really are. And He sets those who free, those who are oppressed. Paul talks about in Corinthians, we wage war not with weapons of this world, but against strongholds, philosophies, teachings against the truth of God. Beloved, you and I, even in Christ, because of the old man, still walk around brick by brick, putting our own truth in place of God's truth. This is the way things should be. This is what will make me happy. This is the way everybody should live their life. This is the way everybody should respect me. And we think we're building up a great argument when all we're doing is brick by brick encasing ourselves in a self-made prison. And Jesus has come to set those free who are oppressed and to set captives free from sin. And the favorable year of the Lord is today. Is today. Salvation is available for everyone today. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your servant, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the faithful servant of Israel, sitting on David's throne, reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all the saints. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. Give us spiritual eyes to see our lostness. Set us free from the power and penalty of sin through faith in you. And we look forward to your return. May we be found busy doing your will and spreading the good news when you return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.